This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. Hello. Welcome to another edition of Baked and Awake. This is Steve with a few opening comments for you uh, for today's episode, which will be a narration in full of another CIA reading room document recently acquired from CIA.gov. This is unrelated to our previous episode about the analysis and assessment of the gateway process, which was a very cool and interesting topic in and of itself. Not to say there are no common threads to be pulled on between all of our narratives that we get into here on the show, but this is a separate, completely separate document and issue. The title of the document is The National Cultural Development Under Communism, or as I have dubbed it here during my editing process, Natkul Dev Uncom. The document was released in 1959 to the CIA, so prepared, excuse me, in 1957, prepared and released to the CIA. We don't know the author of this one, but it does appear to be written in the voice of an Eastern European reporting to potentially his CIA, his or her CIA handlers. Um, Regardless, it's a very interesting doc that we also have prepared some commentary on. Uh, The narration will be done by a friend and fellow podcaster, Kristaps Andresens from the Eastern Border. The Eastern Border podcast is a podcast normally recorded in Riga, Latvia, and ordinarily focuses on Cold War era Soviet history and the history of the states that were part of the USSR. This episode will be released in two parts, this first part being the reading of the document, which will include a little bit of the dressings and trappings of Kristaps' own show in the form of some intro music and outro information about his podcast. So it'll be like a mini show within a show. And then part two, which is coming out right away, will be our commentary about this document, again, entitled National Cultural Development Under Communism. Really enjoyed making this episode for you all. I hope you enjoy it as well. And spoiler alert for those who are hoping for a little tidbit or foreshadowing. There's a big, juicy, Grand Tartaria reference right in the middle of this document. So for those of you who for some reason are coming to the podcast for the first time today, thank you for being here. As always, be aware we smoke weed on the podcast. We smoke weed on the show. So keep that in mind if you're listening to this at work or at church or at a daycare somewhere or anywhere where it might be not the best place to hear the occasional casual reference. Uh, And I'll also say that if you're, again, new and that Grand Tartaria reference went right over your head, just scroll downward in your podcast reader feed there here in Baked and Awake and back around December you'll start seeing my first episodes about the Mud Flood Deception and Grand Tartaria. Really interesting mystery that I'm glad to say 
I was able to drag my friend Kristaps into long enough to look into just a little bit with me. We've done some field trips in Spokane, Washington, as well as here in Seattle, out to visit local architecture and interesting historical sites in the pursuit of eyewitnessing firsthand some Tartarian influence and some Tartarian architecture in our local setting. And uh, I think that was a both a productive and uh, tantalizing trips that we went on, both of which have been shared, by the way, on my YouTube channel. So check that out. You can find me on YouTube just by searching Baked and Awake. Um, and that will be a perfect opportunity for me to also remember to tell you all, Kristaps' show domain name will be in the show notes today. My domain name, bakedandawake.com, will be in the show notes today. You can always find me there no matter what happens with YouTube, Facebook, any of the other social media platforms. As far as I know, as long as I'm maintaining my domain and my own RSS feed and hosting, you can always get it there at our permanent home on the internet, bakedandawake.com. We'll also be providing, of course, the initial, the original link to the CIA reading room at cia.gov where you can get this document for yourself and read it for yourselves. If you're like me, an audio type person, then you're going to enjoy this episode because Kristaps' voice is the perfect voice for this document. And um, we have taken it as well as a video recording of the, uh, the full text of the doc and created a short video. Well, it's a 35 minute video, so it's the full length of the doc on YouTube that again is on my channel and that's up right now. So you can listen to and read the doc at the same time if you want to by checking it out on Baked and Awake. But this is going to be a pure audio version for the podcast. All right, everybody, that's enough blabbing from me. I uh, really appreciate you all and all the listens last month to the content that came out then. Uh, and people have been emailing me and getting in touch about questions, feedback, suggestions, places to go check out. So absolutely love all of that. Please keep it coming. And uh, appreciate the YouTube comments and stuff too on my videos. Uh, even the uh, slightly tongue-in-cheek ones. Mr. Gower, I'll get you. <laughs> and uh, yeah. All right, you guys. You guys are great. Um, Christops is great. You're going to love this episode and hearing this doc read in his voice and then look forward to part two where we break it down just a little bit for you. So, all right, everybody, take her slow. We'll see you on the other side. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. This time, I am recording from Seattle, which is awesome. I love the Space Needle. You'll hear about that later in the show. But this episode is recorded together with my generous host here just before I leave for home, Steve, who runs the Baked and Wake podcast. And in the show notes, you will see that we'll provide links. You should go and check out that show, too. This episode is going to be about CIA documentation. And we're going to take a look at it, we're going to analyze it from my historical perspective and from his conspiracy theory perspective, which is really interesting too. 
But we're going to do that, and the first part of the episode is going to be me reading this CIA document in full, because I believe that's important. And then the second part of the show is going to be our discussion with Stephen from Bates and Awake about this whole thing. Before that, I have some special thank yous to, to say to people. And first of all, Rachel and Leon, you are the most amazing people ever in Vancouver. I love you. You are the greatest and the best, and thank you for having me over. You truly inspired me, and Leon basically got my mind in order. He's a great guy. And also Rob's Tube from Vancouver Island. <laughs> he, by the way, runs Roto-Rooter Plumbing, so if you need that done, you know, please go there. Ask for Rob's Tube, because he does that thing. But yeah, these nice Canadian people had me out there. It was really cool, and I'm really glad for the help they showed me and for the mental aid that I received there, too, because it was really hard for me for a bit, but now I'm much better. And um, hey, Canada is a pretty cool place, eh? <laughs> Honestly speaking, Canada's really great. And I'm bringing Poutine and Trailer Park Boys back home, and it's awesome. But yeah, right now I am back in Seattle where I leave, and I'm with Stephen. And we're doing this, and even though this is probably the first episode of the Eastern Border where, you know, I am slightly stoned, but that's fine. That's fine, really. Uh, the first part was okay. So I'm going to read you this document now, and then we're going to analyze it. Hope you'll enjoy this. Here we go. National Cultural Development Under Communism Muslims of Russia Tatars of the Volga and the Crimea Kyrgyz and Sarts of Siberia and Turkestan Turks and Tatars of Transcaucasia, Chechens and mountain peoples of the Caucasus, and all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed, whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the Tsars and the oppressors of Russia. Henceforth, your beliefs and customs, your national and cultural institutions are forever free and inviolate. Organize your national life in complete freedom. This is your right. Thus read, in part, a proclamation issued on 7th of December 1917 by the Bolsheviks over the signatures of Lenin and Stalin, addressed to all Muslim toilers of Russia and the East. The Bolsheviks had realized that if their revolution was to be a complete success, and if they were to be able to consolidate their newly won power, the support of Russia's minority peoples, including the Muslims, was essential. Hence this proclamation. Other pronouncements designed for the same purpose were also issued. For example, a previous declaration, also signed by Lenin and Stalin, issued on 15th of November 1917, had stated, quote, The Council of People's Commissars had decided to base its activities with regard to the nationalities of Russia on the following principles. Equality and sovereignty of the nations of Russia. Number two, the right of nations to free self-determination, including the right to secede and form independent states. Number three, abolition of all national and national religious privileges and restrictions whatsoever. And number four, freedom of development for the national minorities and ethnographic groups inhabiting the territory of Russia. The Muslim peoples of Russia had, at the time, no way of knowing how little a Bolshevik, i.e. communist, promise meant. The two declarations, therefore, at first kindled great hopes among them. Colonial subjects of the Tsar whose lands had been forcibly incorporated into and held as part of the Russian Empire, they fervently desired national independence, and these proclamations seemed an open invitation to them to declare their freedom from Russian rule and to create their own national states. The Tsarist regime, therefore, appeared as the chief enemy of the Muslims as of the Bolsheviks, so the former were easily persuaded to cooperate with the latter. Disillusionment was rapid. 
Muslim leaders were at first feasted and feted by the Bolsheviks, but as the power of the latter grew, they soon showed that their promises had been only a tactical maneuver. The newly established independent Muslim governments were ruthlessly suppressed by the Red Army and the Russian rule reimposed as the Bolsheviks forgot their promises to recognize the right of self-determination. The history of the communists during the 40 years they have been in power in the Soviet Union shows that self-determination has not been the only subject on which they have betrayed both their promises and their alleged doctrine. Throughout their years of power, and especially since World War II, in their propaganda to the peoples of Asia and Africa, the communists have boasted of their success in solving the nationalities problem by building a multinational state in which every nationality is equal and has full opportunity for a free national cultural development. A brief examination of the record, however, shows that the permitted opportunity for national cultural development is severely limited where it exists at all, and is, in any case, without exception, so controlled and warped as to serve not the needs and aspirations of the various peoples, but only the interests of the Communist Party and Great Russian Chauvinism. Let us, for example, consider the position of Islam. In the Muslim regions of Russia, as in Muslim lands everywhere at that time, Islam was the heartstone around which the life of its devotees revolved, or rather did revolve, until the communists violated their promises and made it impossible for Muslims to perform their religious duties. As we have seen, the November 1917 proclamation promised Muslims that they would be free to continue in the practice of their faith. Even some years before the revolution, in an article entitled To the Rural Poor, Lenin had written, quote, Everyone must be perfectly free not only to belong to whatever religion he pleases, but he must be free to disseminate his religion and to change his religion. No official should be entitled to ask anyone about his religion. It is a matter for that person's conscience, and no one has any business to interfere. A decree to the separation of church from state, issued 5th of February 1918, declared in Article 3 that every citizen may profess any religion or none. In Article 5 that free practice of religious rights is guaranteed, and in Article 9 that citizens may teach and study religion privately. Once the communists had consolidated their power, however, they began to reel their true nature, to violate their earlier promises and to take repressive acts. Lands belonging to mosques were confiscated by a decree in 1918. Muslim religious brotherhoods were outlawed during the period of 1921 to 1922, and a campaign was launched to ridicule Islam and to undermine the influence of the spiritual leaders of the Muslim peoples. Freedom to teach religion had been defended by Lenin before the revolution and guaranteed by law immediately after the revolution, but soon Article 122 of a new criminal code made it a crime, carrying punishment of one year's correctional labor to teach religion to children and minors, either in public or in private. In 1929, a direct attack on Islam was begun, which included measures that made active religious life virtually impossible. Islamic leadership was eliminated by the arrest and deportation, if not liquidation, of almost all persons enjoying any religious status. Nearly all village and most city mosques were closed. Religious literature was suppressed through the changing of alphabets, the confiscation of existing religious texts, including the Quran, and the suppression of all publications of a religious nature. And anyone in a responsible position was dismissed if known to be a pious and practicing Muslim. Muslims were to be free to practice their beliefs and customs. That was the Bolshevik promise. But is not Islam part of those beliefs? Is it not the most vital and most deeply cherished part of Muslim life? Yet the communists, in spite of their commitment, have suppressed Islam ruthlessly. Take the matter of mosques, for example. 
When the communists came to power in 1917, there were 7,000 mosques in European Russia alone, in addition to the unnumbered thousands in Muslim Central Asia, the Caucasus and Transcaucasia, and the Crimea. But in 1942, the communists themselves admitted that there were then only 1,312 mosques in the whole of the Soviet Union. The others had been confiscated and converted into warehouses or stores or otherwise desecrated or allowed to fall into ruins. Yet, in the November 1917 proclamation, the Bolsheviks had condemned the Tsars for destroying mosques and prayer houses and called for Muslim support so that such actions could be brought to an end. Although a few mosques have been built in the post-war period and a few others repaired, the situation is little better than it was in 1942. In Tashkent, for example, where once 300 mosques grazed the city before the communists came to power, there are today only 20. Samarkand, which formerly had over a hundred, today has only seventeen, of which only one is permitted to be used. Bokhara, which one boasted of three hundred and sixty, has also only one today. Almata, a Muslim town for centuries and the capital of the Muslim Republic of Kazakhstan, has not a single mosque, nor are any to be found in such a large Muslim centers as Krasnodovsk, Ashabad, or Stalinabad. The same story holds true for the madraskas, or religious schools. Before the communist regime, there were at least 8,000, the 103 madraskas, which there were once the pride of Bukhara's Muslims and which used to train 16,000 mullahs annually, are no more. Today there is only one, the only one, in fact, in the entire Soviet Union, which was a mere 105 students who follow a nine-year course. Such is the manner in which the communists honor their promise to respect Muslim beliefs and customs. Muslim national and cultural institutions. The same fate that befell the mosques and madraskas has also been the fate of the Sharia, the holy law of Islam. This too the communists promised to respect, but we know what a communist promise means. Speaking to the Dagestani people at Temir Khan Shura, now Buinantk, on 13th of November 1920, Stalin declared, we are informed that the Sharia has great importance for the peoples of Dagestan. We are also informed that the enemies of Soviet power are spreading rumors that the Soviet regime would ban the Sharia. I am authorized to declare on behalf of the government of the RSFSR that these rumors are lies. The government of Russia leaves to every people the full right to administer itself on the basis of its own laws and customs. The Soviet government considers the Sharia as customary law of the same standing as that in force among the other peoples living in Russia. If it is the desire of the people of the Dagestan, their laws and customs shall be preserved. This is a fine assuring statement, for could there be a cleaner and more binding commitment of the part of the communists to respect the Sharia? Unfortunately, it did not mean anything, for it was only another example of the fact that the communists constantly say one thing and then do another. The truth is that Stalin knew he was speaking a lie, knew that the communists had no intention of respecting the Sharia, for only a month earlier, in an article published on the 10th of October 1920, Issue of Pravda, which of course the Dagestanis had not seen or nor had any way of knowing about, he had declared, quote, If, for instance, the Dagestani masses who are profoundly imbued with religious prejudices follow the communists, quote, on the basis of Sharia, end quote, it is obvious that the direct methods of combating religious prejudices in this country must be replaced by indirect and more cautious methods. In other words, political expediency required the communists to make promises now and break them later. This is exactly what the communists did. The Soviet government, for a time, allowed the Sharia to continue in force. 
1922, it even established Sharia courts in Turkestan, and then later, in 1924 to 1925, in the course of the agrarian reform, had recourse to these courts to obtain favorable declarations from the Muslim divines. But once they could serve their purpose, all Sharia courts were abolished, especially after the initiation of the vigorous anti-Islam campaign in 1929. As the January 1950 issue of the Soviet periodical Sovietskoye Gosudarstvo i Prava put it, quote, Stalinist precepts, when carried out, quickly led to the elimination of the old-fashioned beliefs in the usefulness of the Sharia, and before long, Sharia eliminated itself and was liquidated. I'm sorry, dear listeners, the bottom of this page is covered by the approved for release document number, so it's hard to read those. Stalin, in 1920, had praised the Sharia as Muslim customary law, but in the Soviet Political Dictionary, published in 1940, describes it as, quote, a means for keeping the workers in economic and political subordination by the rich. It legalizes domination, exploitation, and slavery of the workers, the enslavement of women, and states flatly that, quote, in the USSR now, the Sharia is eradicated. Stalin, in 1920, praised the Sharia as Muslim customary law, but Kizil Uzbekistan, on May 1949, approximately he was there, <clears throat> described it as, quote, a collection of laws which are among the most ignoble and unjust in the world, end quote. Such is the manner in which communists honor their promises, the way in which they respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. The communists have not been content to close mosques and madraskas, support the Sharia and liquidate Muslim religious leaders. They even insult the Islamic faith itself and its holy prophet. God bless and keep him. One communist writer, in setting forth the official party line, described Islam as a, quote, primitive and fanatical religion, end quote, which is a chaotic mixture of Christian, Jewish, and pagan doctrines. And Bagirov, the apostate first secretary of the Azerbaijan Communist Party, the speech printed in the 14th of July 1950 issue of Babinski Rabochi from Baku, called the Prophet Muhammad, may God bless and keep him, a representative of the feudal mercantile aristocracy of Mecca who utilized Islam for the unification of the Arab tribes and for the maintenance of their own power, end quote. Yet despite these blasphemies against Islam and Muhammad, may God bless and keep him, the communists are today trying to persuade the Muslim peoples of Africa, Asia, and the Middle East that they have no better friends than the communists. The Holy Quran makes incumbent upon every true believer of the faithful observance of the five pillars of Islam, profession of the faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and pilgrimage. These all formed an integral part of the beliefs and customs of the Muslim peoples of Russia, which the communists promised to respect. But today, the pillars are prescribed in the Soviet Union. Only the profession of the faith can be made without hindrance, but even this must be done in secret unless the pious Muslim wishes to run the risk of being subjugated to pressure, economic or otherwise, on the part of the authorities. Prayer, too, is impossible for the same reason. In any case, the Muslim worker is not permitted to leave his work to recite his prayers at the anointed times, and the communal Friday prayer is precluded by the absence of mosques and by the fact that the Kremlin has decreed that Muslims must observe Sunday rather than the traditional Muslim Friday as the weekly day of rest. The younger generation, having been deprived of religious instruction, is further handicapped by its ignorance of the prayers. Fasting during the holy month of Ramadan is almost impossible. A Muslim worker, if he should decide to defy the communist ban on fasting, is nevertheless forced to do a full day's work, and the penalty for failing to perform in accordance to assigned work norm is severe. Consequently, fasting has been made virtually physically impossible. Moreover, as a means of enforcing the ban, Muslims are frequently subjected to tests during Ramadan. 
For example, they may be called in for a conference by their superiors and they're offered a drink or a cigarette. Refusal to accept is tantamount to an admission of fasting and they may well lead to dismissal if not to more severe punishment. Almsgiving, or zakat, is rigorously prohibited by law. The criminal codes of the Uzbek, Tajik, and Turkmen republics, as well as that of the RSFSR, which is also enforced in the Kyrgyz and Kazakh republics, provide criminal penalties for the collection of such religious tithes. The fifth pillar, the Hajj, or pilgrimage, was banned by the communists from early days of their regime. As a result of wartime concessions, the ban was lifted in 1944, only to be reimposed in 1947. While the ban was again lifted after Stalin's death, this was more in theory than in practice, for the only Soviet Muslims to have made the trip to Mecca have been faithful communists whose purpose in making the Hajj is not primarily to fulfill any religious duty, but to propagandize. The ordinary Soviet Muslim is still prevented from making the pilgrimage. Such is the matter in which uh, the communists have respected Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim traditional and cultural institutions. Let us turn now to a consideration of some other aspects of Muslim life and culture in the Soviet Union. The 7th All-Russian Conference of the Russian Social Democrat Labour Party, the former name of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, in April 1917, adopted a resolution which read, in part, quote, The party demands wide regional autonomy, the abolition of a compulsory state language. This was part of the Bolshevik campaign to win the support of Russia's minority peoples. A people's language is without doubt the most treasured part of its culture, and a people will fight as hard, if not harder, to preserve that heritage as to win political independence. The Bolsheviks knew this. Stalin, in fact, in his Marxism and the National Question, had written, A minority is discontented not because there is no national union, but because it does not enjoy the right to use its native language. Permit it to use its native language, and the discontent will pass off itself. Once the Bolsheviks had consolidated their power, however, this liberal view of the language question began to change, and great Russian chauvinism once again began to emerge. Lenin saw the danger, and in a letter written on 31st of December 1922, not meant for general publication, he warned that, quote, it is necessary to set the strictest rules concerning the use of national languages in the national republics, which enter in the Union and to abide by those rules with special carefulness. There is no doubt that under the pretext of unity of the railroad service, under the pretext of fiscal unity and so forth, with our present apparatus, a mass of abuses of genuinely Russian character will take place. After Lenin's death, the trend he had foreseen gathered more and more strength as the Soviet leaders forgot their early promise not to accord special rights to any single language. The climax came on 13th of March 1938, when the Kremlin issued a decree which made the teaching of Russian henceforth obligatory in all national minority schools. Today Russian is not only taught in all schools, but has also, through the force of political, economic and legal pressures, become the language of all business and social life in every part of the Soviet Union. Every Soviet citizen, regardless of his national origin, is compelled to make use of it if he is to achieve any success in his career, whatever that may be. Coursework at universities and other higher educational institutions in the USSR, even those located in Muslim areas, is carried on in Russian. This not only strengthens the privileged position of Russian, but it keeps many minority youths from obtaining advanced education, since their training in the Russian language has been so poor that they do not qualify. As a result, only a small percentage of the graduates of educational institutions in Muslim areas are actually Muslim. 
For example, in March 1947, the rector of the Kazakh State University admitted that since the university's founding in 1934, only 17% of all graduates were Kazakh. Similarly, of the 1,100 students graduated by the Uzbek State University in Samarkand from 1927 to 1947, only slightly more than half were Asiatics, the rest having been Russians and others of European descent. Parallel examples can also be adopted for all other Muslim areas and their higher educational institutions. Not only have the communists violated their promise not to institute a compulsory state language, but they have also been making a determined effort to Russianize the various minority languages. Communist writers and grammarians are trying slowly to change the structure of the minority languages to make them conform as much as possible with the Russian model. And when new words are needed in a language, the communists do not permit them to be formed from native roots, but require that they be adapted from the Russian equivalents. Illustrative of this is the statement of the Russian press speaking of a linguistics conference which met at Baku in January 1951. Quote, The duty of linguists is to write really scientific works on the origin and history of the language, in doing which they must fully show the favorable influence of the Russian language on it, and must establish the identical elements in the two languages. The language must be encoded and wildly used around in place of uh, the words from native languages. Carrying on. The above quotation was in reference specifically to the Azerbaijani language, but the same principles are being applied to all minority languages, including those spoken by the various Muslim peoples. Violence has also been done to the minority languages in another manner. The Muslim peoples of Central Asia and the Caucasus at the time of the 1917 revolution had long used the Arabic script for their languages. As part of their campaign against Islam and in order to weaken the ties between Russia's Muslims and the Muslims of other lands, the Kremlin in the 1920s decreed that henceforth all minority languages should be written in Latin alphabets. Then a decade later, a new change was ordered and Cyrillic scripts replaced the recently adopted Latin ones. In neither case were the wishes of the minority peoples taken into consideration. The communists in Moscow simply decided that these far-reaching changes should be made and then forced them upon the people. Such is the communist idea of free natural cultural development. One aspect of the linguistic heritage of any people is its literature, for it is in its literature that a people's language is preserved and perpetuated. But consider what this communist dictating change of alphabets meant. The new generations, since they would be taught only the new script, were cut off from free access to their nation's literature, from the Soviet government, being in complete control of all printing establishments, could and did authorize republication in the new scripts only of such works as it decided would serve the interests of the Communist Party. The fact is that since the imposition of Cyrillic scripts, almost all of the books published in the various minority languages have been translations of Russian works, especially the writings of Lenin, Stalin, and other Communist Party theoreticians. Traditional native literary works remain unpublished and hence are not available to the present and future generations. This situation is especially grievous for Muslim youth since the Soviet government does not permit the publication of almost all Islamic works. The communists have at the same time begun a systematic campaign to ridicule and denounce the native folk literature as a means of justifying their suppression of it. The great Kyrgyz epic Manas, portraying the struggle between the Kyrgyz people and the Chinese, once viewed with favor by the Soviets, are now condemned as anti-popular, reactionary, and an idealization of khans and feudal lords. The Azerbaijani epic Dede Korut, which is also the Turkmen epic under the name Korkut Atta, once considered as an example of the highest type of popular poetry and of people's expression, has somehow, in communist eyes, become a reactionary bourgeoisie poem. 
Kublandibantir. The Kazakh P epic is no longer a paean of national virtue and valor, but low patter extolling violence and brigandine, steeped in the position of hatred of other peoples. Kublandibatir, the Kazakh epic is no longer a paean of national virtue and valor, but quote, low patter extolling violence and brigandine steeped in the poison of hatred of other peoples in the reactionary Muslim ideology and ideas of pan-Islamic supremacy, as have a multitude of works of lesser stature. The fact is that the communists condemned and therefore prevent the publication of all Muslim literary works, except those few which extol the virtues of Russia and the Russians. Such is the manner in which the communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. Well, let us take the matter of history, which, along with religion, language and literature, constitute the core of people's cultural heritage. Here again, the communists have interfered in a shameless manner. For example, on 9th August 1944, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, sitting in Moscow, issued the directive ordering the party's Tartar Provincial Committee, quote, to proceed to a scientific revision of the history of Tartaria, to liquidate serious shortcomings and mistakes of a nationalistic character committed by individual writers and historians in dealing with Tartar history. In other words, Tartar history was to be rewritten, let us be frank, was to be falsified, in order to eliminate references to great Russian aggressions and to hide the facts of the real course of Tartar-Russian relations. And this was no isolated case. In every Muslim area within the USSR, historians on orders of the Communist Party have rewritten history to distort the facts so that the Russians appear always in a good light. Needless to say, histories which present the facts truthfully have been withdrawn and destroyed, so that the present and future generations of Muslims are forever denied the chance of learning the true facts of their nation's past. Such is the manner in which communists respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions. The resurgence of great Russian chauvinism, especially since World War II, has also resulted in the campaign to vilify the historic heroes of the various Muslim peoples. For example, as late as 1947, Ken Searikasimov, the leader of the 1837-1846 Kazakh resistance to Russian aggression, and the national hero of the Kyrgyz as well, was accepted by the communists as a fighter for national liberation. But in June 1949, in an article on Kazakh history, declared that Kennesari's policy directed at the creation of a centralized state was an expression of his usurpatorial efforts to subordinate all other holders of power to himself. On 26th of December 1950, Pravda published a virulent attack on the mistakes of historians of Kazakhstan and made Kennesari and his brother out as black villains. Communist, great Russian interests required that his name be besmirched, so Kazakh history was rewritten. And the communists call this free cultural development. Or take the case of Shamil, the great hero of Caucasian resistance to Russian aggression, who has received the same treatment as Kennesari. The great Soviet encyclopedia, an early edition published before systematic writing of history began, described him as the leader of the national liberation movement of the Caucasian mountain peoples, which was directed against the colonial policy of Tsarist Russia. His denigration began in 1947 at a conference of the Historical Institute of the USSR Academy of Sciences, when one speaker denounced Shamil's movement as not having been one for national liberation, but a struggle for freedom for wolves, for freedom for backwardness, oppression, darkness, Asiaticism. Other conference members did not receive the speech well, and some even reproached Shamil's detractor, and nothing further was heard of the subject for three years. In March 1950, one Geidar Gushemov was given a Stalin Prize for his book History of the 19th Century Scholar and Philosophical Thought in Azerbaijan, in which Shamil was portrayed sympathetically. 
But only two months later, in May, the prize was rescinded and the prize committee administered a sharp rebuke, declaring that Guisemov's appraisal of Shamil basically distorts the meaning of the movement, which was reactionary and nationalistic, and was in the service of British capitalism and the Turkish Sultan. After that, the history of another minority people was rewritten to meet the needs of the great Russian chauvinism, and the communists call this free cultural development. Perhaps the best example of the communist concept for the rights of the minority peoples of the Soviet Union and of the emptiness of their boast of free cultural development is the wartime liquidation of several entire Muslim peoples. Crimean Tatars, Chechens, Ingush, Balkars, Karachai, as well as the Buddhist Kalmyk people. It is hard to conceive of a clear violation of the promise to permit free cultural development, for how can there be a culture or cultural development if a people is liquidated or dispersed in small units amidst other peoples? How can this be reconciled with the communist pledge as contained in the 1917 proclamation to respect Muslim beliefs and customs, Muslim national and cultural institutions? Stalin and his cohorts attempted at the time to justify this genocide on the grounds of military necessity, but the following statement shows the falsity of this claim. All the more monstrous are the acts whose initiator was Stalin and which are rude violations of the basic Leninist principles of the nationality policy of the Soviet state. We refer to the mass deportations from their native places of whole nations. This deportation action was not dictated by any military necessity. Thus, already at the end of 1943, a decision was taken and executed concerning the deportation of all the Karachai from the lands on which they lived. In the same period, at the end of December 1943, the same lot befell the whole population of the autonomous Kalmyk Republic. In March 1944, all the Chechen and Ingush peoples were deported and the Chechen Ingush Autonomous Republic was liquidated. In April 1944, all Balkars were deported to faraway places. The Ukrainians avoided meeting this fate only because there were too many of them and there was no place to which to deport them. This statement makes clear the callous violation of national minority rights by the Kremlin, and it is not merely a propaganda statement written by some Western anti-communist, but it came from the mouth of Nikita Khrushchev, president head of the Communist Party, during his speech to the party's 20th Congress on 25th of February 1956. He claimed that it was all due to Stalin, but the fact remains that if the Kremlin masters had the power to violate minority rights once in so brutal a fashion, they can do so again, whenever they might so choose. It is simply another illustration of the meaningless of the communist boast about free cultural development. In his well-known essay, Marxism and the National Question, written in 1913, before the communists came to power, Stalin wrote, only the nation itself has the right to determine its destiny. No one has the right forcibly to interfere in the life of the nation, to destroy its schools and other institutions, to violate its habits and customs, to repress its language or curtail its rights. And in Counter-Revolution in the Peoples of Russia, an article published on 13th of August 1917, Stalin wrote, But no one has the right to interfere in the internal life of a nation and by force correct its mistakes. Nations are sovereign in matters of internal life, and they have the right to manage themselves according to their own desires. The record of 40 years of communist rule, however, shows that every one of these principles professed by the communists before they won power has been systematically and constantly violated. The Kremlin has interfered forcibly in the life of the various minority nations in every conceivable manner. The latter schools and other institutions, for example, mosques and mardasas, has been destroyed. Their languages have been repressed or at least changed and corrupted. Their rights have been curtailed, and their right to rule themselves according to their own desires has been infringed. These statements are especially true of the Muslim peoples of the Soviet Union. Once they were subject colonial peoples of Tsarist Russia, today they are subject colonial peoples of Soviet Russia. 
The only difference is that under Tsarist rule they enjoyed cultural autonomy, whereas today, despite the communist boast of free cultural development, they are deprived of their own culture and are more and more being forced to adopt a culture shaped by the needs of great Russian chauvinism, i.e. they are being Russianized. The other Muslim peoples of the world would do well to reflect on the fate of their unfortunate co-religionists before they accept the communist propaganda now being directed at them. For there can be little doubt that if ever the communists were to gain control of their lands, they would suffer the same fate. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for another episode of The Eastern Border. As you might know if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Discord, our show is growing. If you haven't already, this is the perfect time to join our community, as we will soon be delivering exclusive stories from Ukraine and give you an in-depth analysis of what is going on over there. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash the eastern border. A big thanks to all of those who are already donating. The show would not be possible without you guys. That's it from me now. See you online.